week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 1977, Roger de Vlaminck paid Freddie Martins to help him win the Tour of Flanders. The Koppenberg was in the race for only the second time. The 600 metre climb was considered so steep that riders wanted to change bikes at the foot so that they could tackle it with a more appropriate gear ratio. But the race organisers, eager to avoid a bottleneck of bike-changing riders, decided that no rider would be allowed to change bikes throughout the race unless there was a genuine mechanical problem. But the Belgian rider, Freddy Martens, decided to try and change bikes on the sneaky anyway. As the race unfolded, Martens ended up at the front of the race, in a trio alongside Roger de Vlaminck and an ageing Eddie Merckx. But a UCI commissaire, Jos Fabry, had seen the illegal bike change and pulled up beside Martens during the race and told him that he was going to be disqualified. Martens claimed innocence and said he would appeal. Bizarrely, Fabry allowed the current world champion to continue riding but said that once he got to the finish, he would be disqualified and removed from the final results. Merckx had already been dropped, which left Martens on his own up front with de Vlaminck. Knowing that he couldn't win himself due to his impending disqualification, Martens did the only thing that seemed reasonable given his current predicament. He asked de Vlaminck for 300,000 Belgian francs in return for a toe to the finish. De Vlaminck, desperate for a win in the only monument classic that had eluded him for so many years, agreed. So Martens pulled De Vlaminck to the finish for two hours. The latter didn't do one turn on the front for those final 80 kilometres, and he nipped past Martens in the final straight to take the victory. De Vlaminck crossed the line to a chorus of boos and jeers from the local fans. They knew he had not done a tap of work. After the race, Cycling Weekly reported the following about the events that unfolded. De Vlamick said, I told Freddy that I couldn't work with him, but I did not promise to let him take the sprint. The reason for this comparative lack of chivalry lies in last year's Paris-Roubaix, when Roger lost the sprint because he had worked too hard before it. He wasn't going to have that happen again. Even so, said De Vlamick, I would much rather have won that fourth Paris-Roubaix last year than won my first Tour of Flanders like this, he confessed. You know, if Martins attacked me just once, I would have been able to do nothing about it. Farcically, Martens tested positive for stimul after the race anyway, which meant he was disqualified twice. De Vlaminck has never admitted paying off Freddie Martens that day, but the circumstances of the victory make it very hard to accept any other explanation. During your research for this, Killian, you must have been really, really surprised to find that it wasn't actually just Alexander Vinokurov that does it. Yeah, shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's not just <laughs> sneaky, sneaky Russians, even though he's not Russian, but... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's reared its head recently, and um, I, I, I just thought it was interesting to put this in because, it, of course, it happens all the time. And uh, you know, it's funny. I, I remember watching the um, the world's road race, um, which, funnily enough, Vinokurov also won in uh, in in kind of controversial circumstances when Rigoberto Uran seemed to look the other way at just the wrong moment, and Vino sprinted to the line. And, uh, of course, the other race we're talking about is Liege by Liege in 2010, where it, now mm-hmm. it's alleged that Vinokurov paid off uh, Alexander Kolobnev. And um, I, I was watching the World's Road Race, and um, I was kind of, I was on um, chat on the internet with friends of mine who were kind of watching a cycling race pr- pretty much for the first time, as a lot of people were during the Olympics, kind of asking what the hell was going on. You know, he, he, you know <laughs> please explain this to me. I just, I don't get it, like... And you know, I was mm-hmm. I was going through things, and and oh, and there's Team Sky on the front, and then all of a sudden you'd see, you know, uh, I know uh, Kirienka, the Belarusian guy, did a turn on the front for Team Sky, and one of them was like, well, why is he there? And then Bernard Eisel came on the front 
for Austria and like you know who's he riding for and like I have to explain that you know actually those two guys are riding for Great Britain as well Isil is a current Team Sky member and Cavendish is you know busy and uh, Kirienka's joining them next year and they've probably been paid to do this and they were mm-hmm. like what you know can you do that and you know the answer is well no but everybody does and and they were just so shocked that this is an open secret that this goes on and uh, you know, it, it's maybe maybe rightly so. They're shocked. You know, I, 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 there was an article up on Inner Ring, whose uh, articles are just fantastic. Um, he 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 put up one recently uh, addressing this whole situation, and uh, he he kind of alluded to the fact, and I've thought about it myself as well. That you, you know, uh, we're all so disgusted at the doping in the sport at the moment, and I'd say if you mm-hmm. if we were to transport ourselves back to the the 50s or 60s or even the 70s yeah you know i i there wasn't this disgust at doping it was just kind of you know Part yeah of the game. exactly yeah and you know there, there were it, it didn't it wasn't a big news story you know if you got caught with drugs you got like a five minute penalty and you you, you know it wasn't a big deal and uh mm-hmm. like you just wonder in 30 40 years time or, or less even are people going to look back at this and say god you know people used to buy races in and fans didn't care and and you know it wasn't a big deal and god how was this allowed to happen and you know all of a sudden it's a big problem and you, you just wonder um well to, to be honest I, I did wonder whether it would be a problem in 40 years time but i don't think it will be i no i don't i don't think so either and we've discussed this before and the big issue for me i mean it's 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 happened as i say since time immemorial and it i actually find it almost an interesting subtext of any race, you know, trying to guess who's paid who what. But if you know, if you're a bookie taking bets on that race, this is technically sport and fraud. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Like I'd say I'd say bookies wouldn't be a fan of this at all. Not not that cycling is a big big earner for bookmakers, but uh I you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it's a big uh, deterrent for bookies either. Um to, to, to not get involved in this sport as well as the doping you know they just they wouldn't want they wouldn't want to invest their time or money in it i would imagine but uh mm-hmm. you know like the uci have started to investigate this finikurov payoff for liege best on liege and i you know some some people have kind of said well why are they bothering their arse you know investigating this when there's so many other things to investigate and i suppose the only reason is that there there have been emails and they're they're obliged to investigate this they've broke you know people have broken the rules and all of a sudden there's proof that they've broken the rules i mean it it would be remiss of them not to investigate they have to and uh but 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 like the the reason i think that this will never become an issue like doping has become is because there's no like it's just incredibly unfortunate that and stupid that Vinokurov got caught with these emails. It's very, like there's mm-hmm. no there's no doping product. There's no doctor you have to go to to get it off. There's no transportation of this the illegal substance. You know there's no there's nothing really to get caught doing except communicating about doing it, which is what Vinokurov has done. And uh, you know there's just there's there's you know you're not going to test positive for paying somebody you know everybody's got money it's not like having money is in your in your on your person is illegal so there's just there's very very few ways to to pin people catch people doing this and not even catch them but to prove it you know it's just impossible and i don't think it's ever going to be eradicated or even attempted to be eradicated because as you say it's an interesting point and uh it's uh it's here to stay i'd imagine yeah 
And I, I think it, it's actually probably got worse. I mean, it used to be part of the sport because riders were so poorly paid that they would take any opportunity they could to, you know, to make a few a few dollars or euros or you know francs or whatever back in the day. But now you've got this this divide between ridiculously wealthy riders like Vino. You know, comparatively, they're, I mean, they're poor compared to football players, but compared to the rest of the peloton, and guys who, you know, they're still being only paid a decent working wage at the bottom end. So, hundred and twenty thousand euros. I was saying to Scott, my God, that you know, that's a lot of money. But for Vino on the comeback trail, with you know all of that publicity in Kazakhstan and that sort of thing, it was probably a worthwhile kind of just advertising investment for him across the line first. Whereas for Kolobnev. It's a really decent chunk of cash. So, I mean, that makes it even more likely that we'll have wealthy riders paying off poorer ones to work Yeah, for and, and it's, I suppose it's not just about money. I mean, obviously it's about money. Like, I know, for instance, uh, like the, the old Irish writer Shay Elliott, um, he, he, he was kind of, he had this reputation of a rider who was more interested in money than in winning. And, uh, you know, like you say, it's... It, it, if you're getting paid these sums of money, it's hard to blame them, you know, in those sorts of times. And, you know, you're looking after your family and you're trying to get a bit of money. And yeah, I suppose the, um, the thought is that if Elliot had been more concerned with winning, his Palmares would have been much more, uh, much, much fuller than it, than it ended up being. But then there's the other side of it as well, where money isn't really changing hands and riders are doing other riders favors in races because they've been done favors. Like, I know, uh, and we talked about Sean Kelly um, n- never winning the Tour of Flanders last week and I, I know in another edition of that race in 1987 um, he was up in up front in, in what effectively was the winning move it was 10 or 12 riders and uh, he was the only member of his team and there was a couple of teams who had a few riders in the break and one of them mm-hmm. was Claude Cric- or, sorry Claude Cricillion was in there as well and he was on his own and uh, Claude Cric- Sean Kelly said to Claude Cricillion you know it, um if you attack and if you get away on your own, I won't chase you down. But if you attack and somebody goes with you, I will. And so Kirkillion did attack. He got away on his own and he won. And he won the Tour of Flanders on his own. And Sean Kelly won the sprint for second place ahead of Eric van der Arden. And so that was another Tour of Flanders that got away from Sean Kelly. But Kelly was just repaying a favour that Kirkillion, I think, had been fairly instrumental in him winning the Tour of Lombardy maybe in 1983. I think Kirkillion played a part in that. And, you know, so there's that element to it as well, where no actual money changed hands, at least I don't think so. And, you know, there's just, there's no way to police that. So if you just, if you're just adding money to the equation, it, it's, it, it's, it's not really making it any easier to catch these guys to, to essentially breaking the rules. But, you know, you're, it's, it's never, it's never going to be gone from the sport. But I tell, I tell you what, what also is actually a lot less offensive than doping with this, because... The last time we mentioned it, I got some flack about how you know we were so hard on on you know, the, the culture of doping, but we don't we'd almost laughed this off when you and I had talked about it on Twitch, and it's that in doping you actually get people who have no business at the front of a race, you know, riding up mountain passes with their mouth yeah. shut, and it's actually fundamentally changing the character and performance of the rider. With this, you can only buy a race if you're in a position to win it. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, so you're a top rider anyway. Yeah, you still need to f- have the physical capability, absolutely. And uh, just to go back to what we were, what I actually mentioned in the piece, I, like I got a lot of that information from uh, there was an article by Herbie Sykes in Pro Cycling Magazine. And uh, just for, for for anybody listening, if if you enjoy this stuff, 
you'll really like Herbie Sykes' articles in Pro Cycling. He's like the master of this kind of thing. He's he's really really good, and uh, he he wrote about this incident, and uh, he 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 wrote the line that. Uh, Roger de Vlamick had committed the cardinal sin of Flemish cycling. He pilfered the Ron van Vlaanderen. And there's actually YouTube footage of this happening. Um, I, I, I hadn't watched it up until yesterday. I didn't, I didn't never dawned on me to, to look it up. But I, I looked at the, the end of this race. And uh, like, like I said in the thing, uh, Roger de Vlamick has denied paying Freddie Martins up until now. But if you look at the footage, it, it's just, it's undeniable what's going on. It, it, it's just yeah. like um, <laughs> I mean it's like Devlamic doesn't take one turn at the front it's no exaggeration Martins is just plowing away he's not flicking his elbow he's not looking behind for help he's just riding at the front and taking the wind for Devlamic I mean there's, there's no other explanation and then at the at the finish you know Martins is the best sprinter in the world he's the world champion he's just he's almost he, he, he won he went on to win eight, or sorry, eight stages, thirteen stages of the Tour of Spain uh, that year, and you know yeah. he was just absolutely formidable. So to to suggest that he couldn't beat De Vlamic in a sprint, and not even that he couldn't beat him, he didn't even try. I mean, if you look at the footage, it's just De Vlamic just nipping past Martin sitting up, and De Vlamic didn't even celebrate over the line, which is telling. He just rolled over and uh, you know di- didn't celebrate one bit, and you can hear the boos at the finish line. They're they're audible. Mm-hmm. There's a massive amount of booing, and there's actually if you look up, I I can't remember what I typed into YouTube. It's just 1977 Tour of Flanders, and there's a there's a couple of clips, but there's one clip in particular of this. Uh, this crowd of Belgians standing next to the podium as the Vlamic is up there in his Brooklyn jersey, getting the getting the flowers and the kisses, and it's just abuse. Like just, I I I mean I don't understand it. I don't I don't understand Dutch or Flemish, but it, it's uh it's it, I mean you get the picture. They're disgusted. He's getting dogs. Oh, they're absolutely oh. disgusted, and it, it's just it's it's great it's great that that stuff's on YouTube to to be able to look at it if. Uh, if anybody that can translate it could, would be able to do that, it would be very, very interesting to know what was being said. But, you know, you, you get the picture. They're not happy. Well, we'll move on now. I mean, you managed to work a wee bit of a Irish influence in there talking about Sean Kelly. And actually, when you had, uh, you know, you went to your audience with Sean Kelly and he, he kind of gave the tip of the wink and said, we made an arrangement. Mm-hmm. We know what he was talking about. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah. But we'll move on to um, another Irishman who I think... Although he, you know, he had a great start to his career, um, sadly fizzled out a bit and never, never, in my opinion, achieved what he could have been capable of. In 2007, Mark Scanlon retired as a professional cyclist. At the 1998 World Championships in Valkenburg, the relatively obscure rider Oscar Kamenzen tasted success in the elite men's road race, becoming the first Swiss rider to do so since Ferdi Kubler almost 50 years previously. But the junior race was won by a rider who can very much be placed in the one that got away category, Irishman Mark Scanlon. In the pouring rain, Scanlon won a sprint from a small group, just pipping Filippo Pizzato to the line to pull on the rainbow jersey on his 18th birthday. He eventually moved onwards from his junior world title to join the professional ranks, as he rode for the French AG2R team between 2003 and 2006. In his time as a professional cyclist, Scanlon's best results were winning the Irish National Road Race title twice and taking a stage of the Tour of Denmark in 2003. He also rode and finished the Tour in 2004, becoming only the seventh Irish rider ever to do so. 
but in 2007, a combination of homesickness, a pregnant girlfriend experiencing medical complications, and a general disgruntlement with the professional cycling scene saw Scanlon call time on his professional career at the age of 27. In an interview with Pro Cycling magazine in February 2008, Scanlon discussed how difficult the process of making the move to the senior peloton could be. As an amateur, I had more drive than any of the French guys because they were living at home. They weren't under a huge amount of pressure. I was living in an apartment on my own and paying for it myself, so I had more of a want for money than they did. That seemed to be a factor that brought me to the top quicker than any of them. When you're amateur, you're dealing with guys in your age group and at your own level of cycling, so you're not really too bothered if they're talking down to you. Saying that, you are annoying them, but when you turn pro, all that changes. The social status on a team changes. I was happy enough before I turned pro because I was doing my own thing. I was training hard and I was getting really good results. But for some reason it seemed much harder to achieve those goals when I turned pro. The mentality of some pro teams is that when you're giving 100% you're just getting the piss taken out of you. And they're not happy if you do that. It's like you're making them look bad or something. It became a constant battle between me and the other AG2R riders. Eventually I fell into their way of doing things. Just getting by race by race and having a bit of fun. It was the wrong road to go down. For me, it was the same as getting hassle for doing well at school. You're liked when you're doing nothing, and disliked when you're doing well. Scanlon also said shortly after he quit the sport, In the Pro Tour, you cannot win anymore. You cannot compete with those that are cheating. Even if you do manage a win, you are immediately deemed to have cheated. I was not good enough to win, but there were many people around me who were, and felt these emotions as well. As for the drugs, I never understood it. I don't think it's the race organisers or team managers or sponsors that are causing it anymore. It's just the cyclists themselves, and I could never get over that. Guys are getting caught and other guys are still doping. It was a shock because guys are losing their sponsors and their jobs. Then they are suddenly unemployed. The biggest problem with the sport is that it tires everyone. In general, it's clean, but when you get to the World Cup and Tour de France, there are always a few guys who see that they can make a few bob quickly. There need to be bigger financial penalties because guys who have cheated still get to keep their winnings and often don't care about the ban after the payout. I can't say I'll ever look back and miss what has happened in the last few years. Tell you, I was really puzzled because when I, you know, I typed Mark Scanlon into Google, I thought, geez, he's put on some muscle. Apparently there's a free-form martial artist with the same name. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think it's this Mark Skellen anyway. Definitely not. <laughs> but I mean, he he started. He came with a real bang by beating uh, none other than people Pizzato, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, was it? Well, well, I mean, obviously Pizzato had had yet to make his name as well. But I mean, in hindsight, I mean that was a big scalp. Like Pizzato went on to win Milan San Remo, uh, and uh, I mean it just kind of shows you the, the kind of company he was keeping and. and uh, like I suppose, it, I mean, it's it's um, like from the very start of his career, he he was. It had been such a long time. Well, it had been a, a number of years since Kelly and Roach were uh, at, in their heyday and winning, and there was there was no other Irish rider came along after those two retired. I think Roach retired in '93 and Kelly retired the following year, and uh, mm-hmm. and Martin Early as well was around, and he he retired around the same time. So all of a sudden, Ireland had no no top riders in in cycling. And then all of a sudden, Mark Scanlon came along, and he was—I mean, he didn't just win the world championships out of the blue. Like he—he he, he won, I think. I think he won thirty-six races that year as a junior. And you know, they were—you know—he obviously won Irish domestic races, but he won like the amateur edition of Het Volk, for instance. And he mm-hmm. won uh, the Junior Tour of Ireland, which was and was you know quite prestigious. And um, 
you know, he, he, he won that race just formidably. Like, he won three stages. He led from start to finish. He won the points jersey. He came second in the mountains jersey. And, you know, he beat the rider who, who finished second by three and a half minutes. And uh, mm-hmm. would you care to guess who was the rider who finished second? Go on, yeah, I, you'll have to tell me. Bradley Wiggins. So, so I mean, <laughs> that just kind of shows you the, the, the class that this guy was in. And... Um, you know, it's just we spoke last week about you know the kind of the untold stories of of what all this doping in the sport, uh, what it means for, for these guys that never fulfilled their potential because of the guys who doped and won and earned all the money, and uh, Mark Scanlon is 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 a you know prime example of that, and uh, like there was a few quotes I put in the piece that uh, you know they were about drugs and 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 how, how bad it was but actually um there was another article that i read that scanlon had, had written himself it was it was like an open letter and it was shortly after he had retired and he was just commenting on uh all these pieces that had you know obituaries he called them of his time in mm-hmm. cycling and he he actually kind of strangely enough he tried to clarify that it wasn't all about doping it was there were other reasons and the other reasons to me, once he has described them, seem indirectly to be as a result of doping. So his other reasons were that he was over-raced as a youngster because he would go to races and, uh, you know, he, he'd be, it would be planned that he would, say, race in a five-day race in France. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. one of his teammates would get injured and he would be put into another five-day race to cover. And that... Uh, a season that that was planned on being 90 days would end up being 150 due to the fact that he was a bit of a lesser rider and would just get plonked into these races because he wasn't a leader and then i tell you the the flip side of that actually is that he had so much class that whenever they thought he might have a sniff of a win they just raced him whether it was appropriate well well, i yeah maybe there's a little element of that i maybe sometimes but i mean to be to be over raced to that extent uh you know, I, I I don't know. Like, I mean, you can't imagine, say, Philippe Gilbert going to Spain to race the Tour de Basque Country, and one of his teammates gets gets injured, and they upset his whole race plan and go, "Actually, we need you to do Catalonia. Go on." Ah, yeah, true enough. You know, I, true I, I, enough. I, you, you know, for 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 these guys at the kind of the entry level of the sport, I I, I don't know. I, I I think it would be just because they are domestiques and go on you know what are we paying you for and and speaking of being paid that was another one of the reasons he said you know the money wasn't terrible but it wasn't great and i just it wasn't it wasn't worth it essentially was what he was saying but to me those two reasons are indirectly due to doping i mean he's not getting paid as much as he should because he's not as good as he should be because this rider's doping and he's mm-hmm. being overraced in races because he's he's not he's not a team leader. He's not as good as he should be because riders are doping. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't know whether he wanted to just tone down his his uh, his vilification of of the dopers or or, or what. I, I I don't know. Like I can kind of understand that. I mean, I'm sure he still has friends in in the sport and that. But you know, to me, all of his reasons for leaving were as a result of doping. Direct. I completely agree, and I mean he's a perfect example of, um, you know, it not being a victimless crime, because if you look at his promise, you know, beating Pizzato, um placing really well, and you know, you talk about him, him giving uh, Wiggins a bit of a whipping, 
he clearly could have gone on to greater things, and he didn't. Yeah, and and like, it's 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 sad as well. Like I know in in the uh, in the nineteen ninety nine tour presentation, this was supposed to be the tour of renewal and all of that, and uh, you know it was after it was the first first tour after the Festina affair. And uh, you know this was it was nineteen ninety eight that Scanlon won his junior world championship. So at the ninety nine tour presentation, which was only a couple of months later, uh, he was he was brought into the tour presentation as this like beacon of clean cycling. You know this is the future kind of thing. This this is our current junior world champion, and and this is what we have to look forward to in the future. And you know like Le, Jean Marie LeBlanc, who was the tour organizer at the time, like he he, he was. Uh, uh, an article written at the time said he reminded everyone involved in cycling of their duty to provide a drug-free environment in which innocent youngsters like Scanlon could compete in safety. And in the same in, in the same tour presentation, Scanlon was interviewed and uh, he said this, I'll just read out this quote, he said, At the time of the tour, it was disappointing to see that professional riders had indulged in drugs, but I'm not so disappointed now because it is all about, out in the open and that has to be good for the sport. Cycling isn't the only sport which has a drugs problem. Just look at the newspapers and you will see plenty of other sports have been scandalised as well. It's right across the spectrum, but cycling is doing something about it. As someone who hopes to make a career in the sport, it is good, in a way, to see people trying to sort out this problem. I believe things are looking up. Cycling will be cleaned up two or three years down the road and nobody will be able to embarrass it then. I mean, like, does that not sound like something that has been said in the last couple of weeks or months I was just going to say, plug that into 2012 when you're yeah, there. Like, it's really sad that this, that, that, you know, we went through, we've been through this. We've been through this loads of times and it's still happening. And, like, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. Like, I mean, the UCI now have came out, come out and said, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to investigate ourselves. You know, they're, they've said they're going to hire an independent commission. And now it turns out they've, they've gotten this Australian guy who, who's, pretty palsy with Hein Verbruggen and, and the whole situation mm-hmm. just seems like a farce again like I know f- this, FIFA went through all of this when, when they awarded the uh, the World Cups to Qatar and Russia and they investigated themselves and lo and behold they found themselves not guilty of corruption you know it, I just just listening to you the World Cup to Qatar where the hell's the World Championships yeah be? exactly yeah. <sighs> yeah and yeah I mean it's just like it, it, it's exasperating and, and like this is I mean like I mean, I'm sure it's all said, been said before, but this is the opportunity. This is the opportunity to clean it up, and the UCI are making up balls of it again. Like it's it's unbelievable. But I mean, I mean, just just to go back to, to uh, Scanlon's issue, that w- w- one of the other things he said was um, that moving to France and being on his own and uh, you know being effectively bullied by the other riders was also a, a reason for him to quit, and it made it very difficult. You know, I just. Um, I'm not sure for Irish riders. I'm not sure whether that has changed very much. I think for British riders, maybe it has. You know, there's there's plenty of British continental level teams, and you know, mm-hmm. if, if you're good, if you're you know, if you start winning domestic races and even the odd uh, race abroad, you know, you could be riding for Endura or IG Sigma Sport or any of these teams. And you know, if you're good, you know, you might get onto Team Sky, which is obviously the ultimate goal. And there is there has. Mm-hmm. Over the last few years, there has this kind of route into professional cycling has emerged, whether by accident or design. It's you know it's a bit of both, I would say. That you know if you're if a good if you're a good youngster, you can make it, and this is the route. And you know, um, for Irish cyclists, I'm not sure whether that has really been developed. Like there is the on push Sean Kelly team, and you know if you're a good Irish cyclist you do tend to end up on that team but that's the only team they have 
there's no other continental level uh team that's riding these uh races abroad you know there's no other there's, there's no other avenue so if you if you're not if you're not going down that route you have to go down the old-fashioned route that the likes of Paul Sherwin and Robert Miller and 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 Sean Kelly went down is just up sticks, mm-hmm. move into a foreign country, learn a foreign language. Uh, you know, you're essentially on your own, fending for yourself. Like you'd see, you actually see. Uh, I follow this guy called uh, Ryan Sherlock on Twitter. He's a he's a he's he's not a youngster, but uh, he, he I think he's in his thirties, maybe he's thirties. 30-ish and you know he he does this he goes away to to these foreign races and he's a really good rider like i mean at any domestic race he he's going to be up there in in the final shakeup but like you'd you'd literally see messages from him on twitter saying uh does anybody want to share the cost of renting a car over to belgium i want to ride a few kermesses this weekend yeah yeah insane like that's that's the level that it's at you know he's just got no he's doing it all on his own there's no support there's no financial backing and like I, I think for Ireland anyway, like the Celtic Tiger's gone. We're in recession. We've missed the boat in terms of financing uh, of a, stru- a big structure to to support these guys and what they want to do. There's just there's there's going to be no money for these guys for a very long time. And I don't think I, I I certainly think we have missed an opportunity and we have missed the boat to create a seriously good structure for riders to make it in Europe. Well, to be honest, I mean, you led really the the English speaking revolution in professional cycling, you know, with Shea Elliott first, but um, you know Kelly and Roach. That was a, a, a you know foundation to build on. Before we move on, I've got to ask you what you think about the situation with Matt Bramire. Yeah, and so, yeah, I sorry, I actually meant to mention him. He he's actually I think he's the only example of a, of a rider who has gone through the on post system and has made it onto a pro tour level team. I I, I might be wrong on that. I I think I'm right. Cause he, you know, he, he was on the on post Sean Kelly team, and then he eventually moved on to HTC Columbia, where he was teammates with Mark Cavendish. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, he was a success story, and this was this was he was an, the example for you know this this avenue to make it into into pro the top level of pro cycling can work. And yeah, like that's I mean that's a tragic tale. Like you know, if people don't know, uh, Bramier now is uh, as far as I know, he's still without a contract for next year. He was on Omega Pharma Quickstep. He had moved from HCC Columbia after they disbanded last year, and now he's he's without a team because he has no UCI points. Uh, he's basically unhirable because teams don't want to know him because he has no UCI points. But he spent the last two years of his career since he moved on from on post John Kelly, uh, riding for other riders. You know, being a domestique and effective. I mean, he wasn't, he, he didn't really have a great season this year. I think injury and maybe a little bit of illness, I'm not sure ha- has affected him. He hasn't raced as much as he would like, but when he was on HCC, he was very effective. You know, he was part of a lead out train in, in, in the kind of, n- not the grand tour races, but the kind of the B, the B list of races. And he was good. And, but, but now mm-hmm. he's just, he like, this is the UCI's fault. He, he's got no job. And he has no real prospect of getting a job. The UCI have labelled him officially as worthless, and through through the ludicrous point yeah, system. And so, like, what's he to do? I mean, he's probably got. I mean, if he does get hired, which I have no doubt he will, it's not going to be for a world tour team. He's going to be. He's going to have to drop down, and it's uh, it's just tragic. It's it's ridiculous. And, and like you know, in this in this suing culture we have in the sport, you know. You know, people are suing everybody for ridiculous reasons. You know, I, I wouldn't begrudge Matt Bramier suing the UCI for, for 
for effectively officially depriving him of his yeah, life. Yeah, they've you? officially declared him worthless yeah. as a cyclist. Their system has has just not allowed him to to have a CV that that makes him hireable. It's it's insane. It's so stupid. And if they can't look at these examples and say, God, you know. You know, I know there's doping and there's problems, but here's a problem that we can fix today, and they just don't. It's I I, I don't know. It's it, again, it's exasperating. That's I, I'm really glad I asked you because that was a, a passionate and concise argument of, you know, why he's in such a ridiculous situation. We're going to move on now to um, let's be blunt, another ridiculous situation. <laughs> Um, when Tyler Hamilton, Jörg Jaksi and Danilo Hondo were uh, suspended from Tinkoff Credit. In 2007, the Tinkoff Credit Systems team suspended Tyler Hamilton, Jörg Jaksi and Danilo Hondo from riding in that year's Giro d'Italia. The three riders were all involved in ongoing doping investigations. Hamilton and Jaksi in particular were named as part of the Operation Puerto investigation into the notorious Dr. Eufemiano Fuentes. Hamilton had already been suspended for two years, having tested positive for transfusing blood in 2004, so he was on a comeback and hoping to ride his first Grand Tour since he was ejected from the Vuelta three years previously. He had said in early 2007, Everything is for the Giro. I want to be on the podium in Milan. While he also said about Fuentes, I don't know this guy. I've never met this guy. But despite initially standing by their riders as they all claimed innocence, the Tinkoff Credit Systems team did a U-turn and prevented them from riding in the 2007 Giro. Part of the team's statement read that they were doing this in order to fully support the fight against doping. But as we now know, this was all not true. Hamilton did know Fuentes, as he extensively describes in his book The Secret Race. Jorg Jaksch has also subsequently admitted to meeting with the Spanish doctor to receive blood transfusions. But what is most worrying of all is Hamilton's most recent claim that the team owner, Oleg Tinkoff, contrary to the press release in 2007, knew about the doping going on in his team and didn't care. Hamilton said the following about a team meeting with his new Tinkoff Credit Systems team in early 2007. Already at the first team meeting where we sat in a conference room, Oleg Tinkoff said, I do not care what you do, just do not get caught. The Tinkoff Credit Systems team eventually morphed into what is now Team Katusha, and Oleg Tinkoff left along with all his financial backing. But Tinkoff is now back in professional cycling as co-sponsor of the Saxobank team of Bjarne Reis and Alberto Contador. I tell you, even before um, Saxo Tinkoff and, and by extension Bjarne Reis um, got under the coach as a result of um, Tyler Hamilton's Revelations. I was really worried to see Oleg Tinkov coming back into the sport because he always felt a bit malignant to me. I mean, he's really passionate about the sport, rides himself, you know, to a fairly high level, but he, he didn't strike me as a, a man with the greatest scruples. Let's put it that no, way. No, and that, and that quote says it all. The, the one from the, the the piece I just read out there, like you know, I, I don't care what you do, just don't get caught. And uh, you know, and that that was from Tyler. Ham- that was Tyler Hamilton saying that he's doing the rounds now because his book is uh, just been released in Denmark. So the Danish media are milking him for quotes about Reese, and they're milking the Reese angle. And uh, you know, for Hamilton to come out with that, and actually in the piece that I read that in in the cycling news piece, Hamilton said, uh, "Here's what Tinkoff said, and if you want to, uh, if you want, if." You know, I, he, he, what he said was, I can say this out loud because there were many other people in that room when he said that, that will back this up. And, you know, it's kind of, it speaks volumes that, it, again, in a sport that everybody is suing everybody, Hamilton's not being sued for saying that. You know, it's not like Tinkoff is short of a few bob. 
So, you know, if Tinkoff didn't say that, why isn't he coming out saying, hang on a second, Hamilton, I didn't say that, you know, I'm going to sue you. It's because he did say it. And, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, that's just, like, for, for a guy like that to come back into the sport, that, that that's that's his motto. Well, you know, I don't know what it's his motto, but that that's all we hear is just don't get caught. It, it's, it's dreadful. And, you know, like, I suppose the reason I put this piece in uh, was actually again sorry to work the irish angle was to talk about nicholas roach and that he has mm-hmm. signed for this team he, he has moved on from his french ag tour team and now he's going to be riding for saxo bank tinkoff bank next year and you know like the team leader is alberto contador he's probably the most high profile rider in the sport that has served a doping pan the team manager mm-hmm. is bjarne reese who is the most high profile manager in the sport who has doped in the past and now the team owner is Oleg Tinkoff. Like, if that's not a, you know, is there a more dastardly combination in cycling? Or could you could you come up with one? I'm not sure you could. And now Roach has signed for, for this team. And uh, I, I wrote this article on my own website uh, uh, nearly two weeks ago now. And, and where can people find it? <laughs> it's on irishpeloton.com. Okay. And uh, it's, uh, I, I got a bit of stick for it. I, I mean, I... I I got a mixed reaction. Some people thought I, I was, I was, you know, I was making a good point. Other people thought I was uh, kind of character assassinating Roach and casting aspersions on him. But my point was that, you know, Roach has basically struggled so far in his professional career. He's had a few wins. He probably hasn't won enough as he should. And now mm-hmm. he's moved on to a new team where you would hope that he would progress and, you know, uh, right the wrongs that he has that he, he he's done so far in his career you know maybe become more tactically astute change his training change his time trial position do this do that you know make a few changes and improve as a rider but mm-hmm. now if we look at at his situation if roach wins starts winning next year say he wins a stage stage two of paris nice straight away next year you know how, how can people look at that and not be and and not be influenced by the shadow that's cast by his own team. You know, how, how can you look at that and go, yeah, Roach, he's been clean so far. That's that's a victory for clean cycling. No victory on that team next year is a victory for clean cycling in my eyes, whether Roach is a part of it or not. You know, and... And, and you know the annoying thing is, it's not a victory for clean cycling, even if they're clean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And And I suppose the whole crux of my argument in that piece was that this is the UCI's fault. That for putting Roach in this position, Roach is Roach is going to be asked questions about these guys next year and before, and he already has been asked questions on Irish radio about Bjarne Reese and his doping and the Armstrong scenario. And you know, before Roach could deflect these questions and say this is somebody else's problem, you know, I'll give my views. Doping is terrible, etc., etc. But you know, I've never been involved. This is someone else's problem. But now he can't do that anymore. He's foregone his right to deflect questions about doping, and. You know, it's it's it is the UCI's fault that Bjarne Reese is allowed to be in charge of a cycling team. It's the UCI's fault that Oleg Tinkoff is allowed to own a cycling team. And you know, Contador served his ban, came back. Okay, those are the rules. But now Roach is in this position. You know, I, I myself and I don't think anybody else could have a reason to to suggest Roach has been doping so far in his career. His, no, his, his results certainly don't, don't suggest it. So. 
you know, but but now Roach is in this position, and he's in this position because this is the position the sport is in now. That it's surrounded by these guys and these these figures in the background that are poisoning it still. And Reese isn't out of the woods, I don't think. You, you know, he he's uh, he he's going to have a lot of questions to answer uh, about these these allegations. And and like I know, um, like I just it's just it's just disappointing that Roach has put himself in I don't know why Roach signed for this team I'm sure he had other offers I, I, I know he had so yeah. I, don't, I don't know why he signed for this team I think it's a big mistake now I usually try to keep my UCI bashing to the Velocast you know where essentially you can't avoid it because Scott gets his knickers in a twist about them all the time quite rightly quite rightly um, yeah. with this one though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them I mean we'll bash them a wee bit already but Jorg Yaksha essentially said he sat down he laid everything out for them and they didn't investigate a single bloody thing. I mean, that's yeah. a disgrace in itself. Yeah, and and like the, the those are the things that the UCI should be answering now in this uh, this commission that's going to be investigating them. Like, why? What good reason did you have for for not for not investigating this? Like, and I think Graham O'Brien was the same. He he labelled him a coward. You know, who's who's the coward here? You know, uh, and you know, labelling Hamilton and Landis scumbags. You know, all of this, it's just, it, it's repulsive. It's, an, it's a repulsive attitude. And for him, not, for them not to investigate Jorg Yaksha's claims is, uh, oh, it, it, it's, it's laughable now. Mm-hmm. And like Roach was also asked, about, the, the whole, sorry, the whole uh, background to the piece I wrote about Roach was this interview that he did on, on, again, this show Off the Ball on News Talk. And uh, um, I don't know whether you've ever listened to it, but the, the interviewer, his name is Owen McDevitt, he's, he's incredibly informed about cycling. Mm-hmm. For, you know, for, for a mainstream media outlet, there's, there's fewer better. And, uh, you know, Pat McQuaid has been on, on there before. And Pat McQuaid just blatantly refused to go on in the wake of the USADA report. And for good reason. He, he You know, he would, he would get grilled. Like, I know Pat McQuaid was on, uh, he was on this show called uh, The Pat Kenny Show. I, I think yourself and Scott might have discussed it on the main show. He was interviewed by this guy Pat Kenny. Mm-hmm. Now Pat Kenny's a good interviewer. He he was he was he had informed himself and he was asking pertinent questions to Pat McQuaid. I think it was the only interview Pat McQuaid did after the press conference that the UCI did about the USADA thing. And uh, but he he just wasn't informed enough for the follow up question, which are the important ones. You know, Pat McQuaid gets asked a question, puts his politician hat on, and goes off, doesn't really answer the question, and moves on to something else. And there are no follow up questions. Whereas this guy Owen McDevitt is full of follow up questions, and he was really hard on Roach, asking him questions about his move to this team. And one of the questions he asked him was, uh, "Why did have you never piped up before against Armstrong?" Basically, was the question. Mm-hmm. And Roach said, well, I don't think it would have mattered. You know, what How? What difference would it make if, you know, this young, new guy, new cyclist in 2004 called Nicholas Roach speaks out about Armstrong? And, uh, you know, I don't think I don't think it would have made a difference. And so McDevitt said, you know, OK, well, what about in the last couple of years? You rode against Armstrong in the Tour de France in 2009, 2010. You know, why not then? You were a team leader then. Why didn't you speak out then? And Roach, well, Roach again said, don't think it would have made a difference. One guy, two guy, three guys isn't going to make a difference. Well, like, hang on, Roach. Like, three guys did make a difference in the end. You, you know, it, it, it's it's worryingly close to, to the code of silence there, in my eyes. You know, and, and that, again, that was disappointing. And he, he stopped short of... Uh, he, he wouldn't condemn the UCI for their lack of... of uh, 
for not investigating claims like York Yaks. And he actually, he 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 told the line very closely to what Miguel Enderain had said. I don't know what you were aware of what Enderain came out and said. He was very concerned that Armstrong was brought down not by testing positive. Mm-hmm. That the new, uh, the new, you know, the new uh, st- standard of proof for, for a suspension is no longer a positive test. And he was worryingly worried about that as well and that he he wouldn't uh he wouldn't really come down hard on uh riders or sorry he wouldn't he wouldn't really um he wasn't really fully behind riders being investigated and being suspended based on investigations which again is worrying and i like you know i roach needs to get his act together in answering these questions because it's not going to be the last of them because he's signed for this team it's not just Roach. I mean, the entire professional peloton has to get its act together. I mean, we've seen a few people speak out, but I'm, I'm still really worried that, one, a big chunk of riders expect us to have blind faith in them, having been lied to time and time and time again. You know, Fistina's only the most recent of those, of Puerto. You know, you go through the names in Puerto, there's list after list of riders. We can't just blindly trust them. But not even that. The ones who just shut up also really worry me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, as you say, it's worrying. I mean, like I hope Roach does well next year. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I hope, I hope he wins races. And uh, like again, I've no, I've no reason thus far to suspect that he is up to up to no good. But uh, people will if he starts winning races. And and this is, this is the sad thing that this this is the way the sport is now. If you sign for a particular team, why are these teams still in the sport? Why are there teams that you can sign for and that people are going to cast aspersions no matter what? You know, and that's not Roach's fault. I know he signed for them, but it's not Roach's fault that the this team is still in the sport being run by these people. And I mean, why why do we have people like Ekimov and Vinokurov going into management positions? No, and and another thing that Don, I mean, like, you know, the the Omega Pharma Quick Step team in in the in the wake of the USADA report. Levi Leipheimer confessed to doping. Okay, fair enough. He he lied so far, but he confessed, and they sacked him. And the two two of the team managers on Omega Pharma Quick Step, or I don't know what their job title is, but they're in the background is Rolf Aldag and Brian Holm, and they can they had confessed to doping, years ago with Team Telecom. You know what sort of duplicitous <laughs> game are they playing? Like what, you know, it, it's just it's uh, it's so inconsistent and. It, it it's it's just it's not uh, it's not conducive to cleanliness. I don't think it's kind of a I don't know. It's a it's a serve yourself kind of thing. Like I mean, I've no doubt they they sack Leipheimer so they could afford Cavendish. I've no doubt. No, I think you're completely right there. Now this is usually my happy place during the week. You know, I get I, I get <laughs> depressed in all the other shows I do, and and I come to you to be happy, killing, But I'm all depressed now. Sorry, so I've dragged you I'm, I'm, I'm just going to have to go and walk my dogs to cheer up. So we'll wind up there. Um, another cracking show. Thank, I mean, thanks for your work on that. I've changed my Twitter name now. I'm at W John Galloway because I wanted uh, my ravings to to have my real name behind them. Uh, we've we've less letters now to give you abuse. Well, that that, that is many people have pointed it as the the happy side effect is folk can argue with me less now because the, the name's longer and takes up more of the tweet. Uh, but you remain uh, at Irish Peloton. People can find you at irishpeloton.com. Um, we've been talking about all sorts of projects for the next year, so I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll hear more of us in Gillian. 
and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>